Last time we spoke about the colonies the United States acquired and the gradual rivalry that it developed with the Empire of Japan. Now while Japan most definitely viewed the United States as its primary threat, possibly only second to Russia, there was always another particular nation on Japan's radar. The historic relationship between Japan and China has often been described as one of Big Brother and Little Brother. Now while Big Brother has for the vast amount of time shown Little Brother the ropes, by the end of the 19th century, Little Brother got big enough to punch Big Brother in the face, so to speak. After the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895, Japan set itself on a course to conquer all of China. The move to invade China, however, would prove to be the trap that would bog the Empire of Japan down until its collapse in 1945. This episode will be on the war in China, better known as the Second Sino-Japanese War. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. Before we start, I want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of the Second Sino-Japanese War? I recommend their episodes on the Defense of the Sihang Warehouse, a legendary battle fought during this war. Oh, and I happen to be the person who wrote the script for that one. I can assure you, it's an awesome one. And of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals on YouTube, and to continue helping us produce this content, please check out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel, on YouTube, where you can find a few videos and even some historic film reviews, such as my historic film review of the movie The 800, which is based on the defense of the Singhang Warehouse. Go figure. Give it a look. It'll mean a lot to me. China is an enormous country, full of natural resources, extensive farmlands, a huge population, and of important strategic and commercial position. This is what drove European powers to it, and eventually, the Empire of Japan wanted a peace for themselves. Within China were endless revolutions, civil wars, and an era of warlordism that fractured the country as different factions fought to become the ultimate ruler. Now how did it all come down to this? By the end of the 18th century, the Qing dynasty that controlled the vast lands of China was at its zenith. It had expanded into Central Asia during the Dzunga Qing Wars, acquiring Outer Mongolia, Qinghai, Tibet, and Xijiang. Its population was increasing, and China had become the largest economy in the world. Yet when the 19th century ended, these golden years of the Qing dynasty would all be lost. Suffering from military weakness, social unrest, multiple foreign interventions, and economic problems, the Qing dynasty had become a sick state in Asia. As the 20th century pulled around, young officers and scholars began to debate whether they might be better off overthrowing the ailing dynasty. 
This would all accumulate into over 37 different uprisings that ended in what is now called the Xinhai Revolution, also known as the 1911 Revolution, or for those in the CCP, the First Revolution, before the actual revolution of 1949. The Xinhai Revolution is quite a complex story, and I would know this quite literally as I just released an episode on it on my Pacific War channel over on YouTube. It is simply too large to cover, but as I did with my own video, I will try to condense it for you. You have probably heard the name Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He is seen as the father of both mainland China and that of Taiwan. He worked tirelessly to fundraise for uprisings during the period of the 1890s until 1911. Out of the 37 uprisings that would occur, he was directly involved in at least 10 of them. He also had to do this extraordinary work overseas and he spent a long period of time in exile. In fact, when the first real successful uprising occurred, known as the Wusheng Uprising, Sun Yat-sen was busy fundraising and was caught completely off guard. What started as a protest against railways being developed in Shandong province by foreign powers eventually fell into revolutionaries attacking the Qing government and trying to seize control. Eventually, the fighting got so fierce, the Qing government was forced to bring out of semi-retirement Yuan Shukai, who was argued to be the only man capable of controlling what was the best army in all of China at the time, the Biyang army. Yuan Shukai had made a name for himself during the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895, where he led the Qing garrison in Korea. Now, Yuan Shikai began a campaign of suppressing the revolutionary army, and honestly, at that point, he was easily capable of annihilating them. However, he did not. In fact, he kept dragging his feet, lying to the Qing government that he required much more funds and other war materials to do the job. While he was doing this, he was actively negotiating with the revolutionaries. You see, he was playing both sides. What ends up happening is quite a fiasco. Yuan Shikai gets the Qing government and the Manchu royal family to believe their heads will literally be on the chopping block if they do not have the young emperor Puyi abdicate. He promises to get the revolutionaries to have a peaceful transition into a new form of government and to spare the lives of the royal family and other members of the imperial council. With no real alternative, they abdicate and put their faith in Yuan Shikai to negotiate on their behalf and take control of this transition. Yet, on the other side, Yuan Shikai is making enormous demands of the revolutionaries. The revolutionaries had established a new Republic of China and elected Dr. Sun Yat-sen as the first president, only to be told by Yuan Shikai that he would not allow this. In fact, Yuan Shikai threatens the revolutionaries with the Biyang army and states the emperor will not abdicate unless Yuan Shikai is made president of the new republic. What a ballsy guy, eh? So Yuan Shikai gets his wish and Dr. Sun Yat-sen has to step down for him, realizing it was the only thing to do at this point to save the revolution. Now Yuan Shikai is the president of the new republic of China beginning on January the 1st of 1912. This new Republic of China was more or less run dictatorially by Yuan Shikai, who, let's not forget, controlled the most powerful army in all of China, the Biyang Army. 
the republic was held in a fragile balance between the Kuomintang nationalists, led by Song Chao-ren, and the republicans, led by Liang Qi-kao, who favored Yuan Shikai. Yuan Shikai almost immediately began efforts to limit and destroy elements of the Kuomintang. One of these methods was simply having Song Zhao-ren assassinated on March the 20th of 1913. You see, Song Zhao-ren was speaking out against Yuan Shikai's authoritarianism and actively trying to limit his power. The investigation into the assassination was unable to find any conclusive evidence to pin on Yuan Shikai, so he got off with it. Though almost everyone knew, he was the culprit. Dr. Sun Yat-sen saw the writing on the wall and fled to Japan. After this, Yuan Shikai eventually dissolved the Kuomintang and the Allied parties. Yuan Shikai then convened a body of 66 men from his cabinet and on May the 1st of 1914 produced a constitutional compact effectively replacing China's provisional constitution. This new legal status quo gave Yuan Shikai, as president, practically unlimited powers over China's military, finance, foreign policy, and the rights over Chinese citizens. After this enormous victory, Yuan Shikai began to reorganize the provincial governments by planting military governors over each who held civil authority and control over their own armies. Yet even when his power was undeniably absolute, it was not enough for the dictator. On November the 20th of 1915, he held a specially convened representative assembly who voted unanimously to offer Yuan Shikai the throne. Then on December the 12th of 1915, Yuan Shikai accepted the invitation proclaiming himself Emperor of the Chinese Empire under the era name of Hong Jian. So after all that, he re-established himself as an emperor, and after a grand 83 days, he drops dead of uremia. Boom. Now remember when I mentioned he started a process of setting up military governors who held civil power and control of their very own armies? Well, that idea was sort of a quick fix, you know, like a band-aid, for many looming issues facing the nation. Now that Yan Shikai was dead, there was an enormous power vacuum. All these military governors took their respective provinces and regions and ruled them as warlords. This is when China fell into the warlord era. And as you can imagine, a large reason for its emergence was Yuan Shikai. So the era kicked off with widespread rebellions in provinces all over China. Meanwhile, the Kuomintang supporters retreated to the south in places like Guangzhou and established a government led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen with the objective of reunifying the fractured country. And let's not forget, this all occurred during World War I, which brought its own can of worms to the mix. In a previous episode, we mentioned the 21 demands Japan issued to China and when Yan Shikai eventually signs off on the amended 13 demands. This led to major protests. Then when World War I ends and the Treaty of Versailles hands over the former German concessions of Shandong province to Japan, well, the people of China lost their minds. The 1919 May 4th movement occurred, which was a set of very large protests, largely in response to the Treaty of Versailles and a perceived weakness of the Chinese government. From this sprang an entire generation of politically motivated Chinese, a ton of future leaders emerged. Ideologies sprang forward, and one of them would be communism. In the words of Mao Zedong, in regards to the May 4th movement, 
1939, he said, quote, The May 4th movement, 20 years ago, marked a new stage in China's bourgeoisie democratic revolution against imperialism and feudalism. The cultural reform movement, which grew out of the May 4th movement, was only one of the manifestations of this revolution. With the growth and development of new social forces in that period, a powerful camp made its appearance in the bourgeoisie democratic revolution, a camp consisting of the working class, the student masses, and the national bourgeoisie. Around the time of the May 4th movement, hundreds of thousands of students courageously took their place in the van. In these respects, the May 4th movement went a step beyond the revolution of 1911. End of quote. The Chinese Communist Party sprang up for a variety of reasons during this time period. One large reason was that Chinese laborers who helped the Russian Empire during World War I fell into its own revolution. A ton of Chinese laborers were trapped in the vast country of Russia when its communist civil war broke out, and many Chinese joined the Red Army. When it ended, they all came home, and as you can imagine, spreading the ideology kind of like a virus. Now you have to visualize the complexity of all of this. Let's just focus on three types of groups here. The communists, the Kuomintang, who we can now just call the nationalists, and individual warlords. All three of these groups are fighting for ultimate control over the Beijing government, which is still running. It never really stopped. Right after Yuan Shikai's death, the Chinese Republic gets Li Yanghong for only a year, followed by Feng Guisheng again only for another year, then Zhu Zhishang gets the job from 1918 to 1921. Yet all of these leaders of the Republic of China don't really hold any power outside the immediate area of Beijing. Outside that area, warlords like Sun Xuanfang of the Eastern Zhili clique, or Wu Fu of the Western Zhili clique, and Zhang Zhaolin of the Fengtian clique are fighting one another. Over the next few years, certain warlords will have more authority than others, and they will exercise this authority on the Republic's government. So, for example, we see the years of 1916 to 1920 dominated by the Anhui warlord Zhang Zun. Then the Zhili and Fangxian cliques join forces led by Zhang Zhaolin, and they fight a war known as the Zhili Anhui War in July of 1920, overthrowing his authority. So, from 1920 to 1924, we see the Zhili dominance over the government. Then, what begins almost immediately is the Zhili Fangtian War, and the Fangtian forces are pushed into Manchuria. Then there is the second Zhili Fangtian War, where the Zhili forces are defeated and pushed north. So, from 1924 to 1928, we see Zhang Zhaolin and the Fangtian clique asserting their dominance. In 1926, there is an anti Fangtian war. But Zhang Zhaolin, during this time, is able to capture Beijing, and the Fengtian clique remains in control of Beijing for a certain amount of time, until a certain looming player makes their move. Do you remember the Kuomintang, who went down south? Well, during the warlord era, they formed a military government in Guangzhou. Now Dr. Sun Yat-sen became convinced the only hope for a unified China would require military conquest from his base in the south. To achieve the democracy they sought, the Kuomintang required allies to bolster their strength, 
and they began to cooperate with the Communist Party of China. Their alliance became known as the First United Front. This allowed Sun Yat-sen to receive much-needed material help from the Soviet Union. Through this, the Kuomintang were able to create the National Revolutionary Army, which we will now call the NRA. They planned for a large military expedition into the north. The man who would command this army is named Chiang Kai-shek, the prodigy of Dr. Sun Yat-sen since 1922. Sun Yat-sen died of what many believe to be liver cancer in 1925, and his protege, Chiang Kai-shek, was now the de facto leader. Now, when Chiang Kai-shek becomes leader, he begins to purge all the communists, based under the guise that he is purging those who oppose the plans for the military expedition in the north. Chiang Kai-shek, like many other nationalists, do not want to have anything to do with the communists. In fact, they see them as the enemy, but they require their assistance. If they want to have any chance, at defeating some of the large warlord armies. So Chiang Kai-shek is playing ball with the CCP and the Soviet Union because he still needs their support. As you can imagine, they were not too happy he purged a bunch of communists, but Chiang Kai-shek is able to play this off by purging some right-wing radicals who, he says, did not support the military expedition into the north. This ensured the continued support of the CCP and the Soviets for now. So the military expedition, known as the Northern Expedition, kicks off in July of 1926. The initial plans are to hit the Zhili warlords. Their focus will be to defeat the warlord Wu Pei Fu, while appeasing Sung Chang Fang and ignoring Zhang Zhaolin of the Fengxian clique. Basically, Wu Pei Fu and Sung Chang Fang control territories between the southern holdings of the Kuomintang and Beijing, while Zhang Zhaolin holds power in Manchuria. Now it goes without saying, if you don't know your geography of China, or you don't have a map handy, this is going to be a little bit confusing to follow. But um, picture it this way. Southeast China is the nationalist starting place, and they are going to attack multiple places going northwards until they hit Beijing. The various territories on the way to Beijing are controlled by the warlords such as Wu Puifu, and Song Shangfeng. So the NRA moves from Guangdong and manages to capture Shangsha, which is controlled by Wu Peifu. During this, Wu Peifu's forces are preoccupied fighting in Nanko Pass near Beijing against a breakaway Zhili faction who were sympathetic to the Kuomintang. So at this time, the NRA chose to appease Song Shangfeng who responded by not attacking their forces as they crossed into Wu Peifu's territory. Then the NRA struck at Wu Peifu's stronghold in Wushang, carefully bypassing Song Shangfang's territory in Nanshang. Chiang Kai-shek said of this moment, quote, The importance of this fight is not only in that it will decide the fate of the warlords, but whether or not the Chinese nation and a race can restore their freedom and independence hangs in the balance. In other words, it is the struggle between the nation and the warlords, between the revolution and the anti-revolutionaries, between the three people's principles and imperialism. All are to be decided now in this time of battle, so as to restore independence and freedom to our Chinese race. End of quote. The NRA are successful and force Wu Peifu's forces northwest, 
The Warlord's forces make a counterattack against the NRA, but lose horribly. 5,000 of Wu Peifu's troops are taken prisoner, along with their military equipment, providing a significant boost to the NRA. By September, the NRA surround Wuxiang, while Wu Peifu and his remaining forces flee to Henan province. His failure to defend Wuxiang, however, ruins his reputation, and the remainder of his army will gradually desert him. With Wu Peifu effectively out of the way, the NRA now directs its attention towards Song Shoufang's Shangxi province. It's the old divide and conquer, as you can probably imagine. Sun proves not to be a pushover, however, and his forces brutally retake most territory the NRA occupies. However, some of Sun's subordinates defect to the Kuomintang, as many are dissatisfied with Sun's brutal rule. So Sun is fighting with factions amongst his own forces, while fighting the NRA simultaneously, and eventually he has to retreat from certain areas of his own control, leaving behind prisoners and weapons. Sun begins to really be on the ropes when Zhang Zhaolin, the warlord of Manchuria, now offers assistance. While Sun definitely needed his troops, a lot of his forces saw them as invaders, and this leads a lot of Sun's forces to defect to the NRA. A lot of battles occur, and the NRA gains ground almost everywhere. Their forces are bolstered by defectors, and they grow up to 700,000 strong. Now the NRA has taken multiple provinces by this point, such as Hunan, Jiangxi, Fujin, Zhaozhang, and Hubei. Sun's forces are retreating to Nanjing after several losses, and Zhang Zhaolin is continuously sending assistance to reinforce places like Zhuangzhou and Anhui. But the NRA are attacking multiple places, and simultaneously. One large place they attack is Shanghai, and Sun's defenders are eventually pushed out. There is chaos and disorder as Sun's navy is defecting now, and the railway that links Shanghai is severed by the NRA. When Shanghai is fully conquered by the NRA, they turn their attention now to Nanjing, and because of the chaos over the retreat of Shanghai, Nanjing is taken with almost no resistance. Now things get messy here. An incident took place called the Nanjing Incident of 1927, in which some Western foreigners were attacked. You see, when the NRA were approaching Nanjing, the local warlord called Zhang Chaoshang gave orders to withdraw from the city. This ends up causing widespread panic, and many soldiers were unable to retreat in time. So they deserted and began to loot foreign properties and even attacked some foreigners. When Chiang Kai-shek gets there and finds out about the incident, he decides to use the situation to place blame on the communists for the attacks. Hundreds of communists in Shanghai are arrested and killed under orders from Chiang Kai-shek, which was later deemed the Shanghai Massacre. This effectively ends the alliance between the KMT and the CCP, as you would imagine. Chiang Kai-shek follows this up with another major purge, and during the entire disarray, Sun Shangfang tries to use the situation to attack Nanjing. Sun's forces, however, are quickly encircled and defeated. Many surrender to the NRA. By 1928, the NRA march on Beijing, and they eventually capture it. It's honestly far too complicated to even go into, and I'm not even mentioning countless regions where war is going on, like between warlords such as Zhang Zhaolin, the CCP who's attacking the KMT on multiple fronts, and the Kwangtung army is even involved as well. 
It's a real mess of battles kind of going on everywhere in China. What you need to know is that in 1928, Chiang Kai-shek's purging of the communists unexpectedly creates the Red Army, and with it the start to the civil war between the communists and nationalists in China. So the northern expedition was a complete success, having conquered Beijing and bringing a large part of China under the control of the Kuomintang. Chiang Kai-shek's government is internationally recognized and is legitimately reformed into the Chinese Republic. Meanwhile, the communists resist the NRA, who's trying to encircle them. Now we mentioned Zhang Zhaolin a few times. He is one of the most powerful warlords and he controls Manchuria. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, he is assassinated by the Kuangtung army in 1928, and his son, Zhang Zhuliang, becomes the warlord of Manchuria. The Kuangtung officers who did this assassination thought by killing him, it might mean they could finally break the chain of command and strength against their resolve to take over Manchuria. Well, as you can imagine, Zhang Zhuliang was not happy the Japanese had killed his father, and he decides to throw his lot in with Chiang Kai-shek. Prior to this, Zhang Zhaolin did not play ball with Chiang Kai-shek. Now that Zhang Zhuliang is, this means that Manchuria is now officially part of the Chinese Republic, a large issue for the Kuangtung army. Then we get the Mukden incident of 1931, when the Kuangtung army begins to invade Manchuria. After five months of fighting, the Japanese occupy Manchuria and establish the puppet state of Manchu Kuo. They even grab the last emperor of China, Pu Yi, to toss on the throne, to try and give it some legitimacy, but it's never really recognized internationally. Now the Japanese did not just stop there, they got even more bold and began to attack places along the Great Wall region, forcing truces to occur, which turn over Jeho province to Japan and create a buffer area around Beiping Tianjin region. Japan will also invade the space of Shahar in Mongolia and set up a new quasi-state there called Mengjiang, under the rule of the Mongolian prince Dongshug Dongrab. Then the Japanese brokered a deal with the Chinese Republic to stop the KMT influence in Hubei, which effectively ended the Chinese control over the province, allowing Japan to have significant control over it, but not to the level of a puppet state. It seemed time and time again the Chinese Republic was simply appeasing to the demands of Japan. As you can imagine, Chiang Kai-shek had a lot on his plate. He's trying to consolidate his power across China, while fighting communists, the Japanese, and some warlords who are still fighting for control. On top of all of this, the guy is trying to modernize the country, and he just got his republic to be recognized internationally. It's a colossal effort to do everything he's doing. The Soviets were a large benefactor for the NRA, and with the civil war going on between the KMT and the CCP, well, they were not as trustworthy as a backer anymore. So Chiang Kai-shek turned to Germany to begin a process of modernizing parts of the NRA. His most loyal and elite divisions are outfitted with German equipment and trained by German officers. There are some videos on YouTube, by the way, where you can see some of the footage of their training, and I highly recommend looking it up. They look like the Kaiser's soldiers of World War I, basically. It's pretty awesome. Now in 1934, the communists who number something like 69,000 are finally routed at Jiangxi, but the Red Army manages to break through the Kuomintang's encirclement and flees northwest. This is what is known as the famous Long March, led by Mao Zedong. 
and they travel over 9,000 kilometers over the course of 370 days over some of the most difficult terrain in western China. It's during this march where Mao Zedong really gains his prestige amongst the communists. They are of course pursued the entire time by the NRA and attacked without mercy. They even have to fight off some warlords to boot. In 1935, Mao wrote of this event, quote, The Long March is a manifesto. It has proclaimed to the world that the Red Army is an army of heroes, while the imperialists and their running dogs, Chiang Kai-shek and his like, are impotent. It has proclaimed their utter failure to encircle, pursue, obstruct, and intercept us. The Long March is also a propaganda force. It announced to some 200 million people in 11 provinces that the road of the Red Army is their only road to liberation. End of quote. The communists arrive in Shangzi, where Mao Zedong began the process of building up the Red Army and educating his followers. It's at this point Chiang Kai-shek has two main threats to his newly formed nation, the Japanese to the east and the communists to the northwest. One would be led to believe the number one threat was the foreign nation of Japan, who at this time was invading Chinese territory. But Chiang Kai-shek did not see it that way. Chiang Kai-shek had this wonderful quote that sort of explains his rationale for what will happen for the next few years. It is as follows, quote, The Japanese are a disease of the skin. The communists are a disease of the heart. End of quote. So what you can sort of get from that is that the Japanese invasions are something of an irritant that eventually could be fought off. But the communists, their efforts were directed right at the heart of China, and that was life-threatening. So in the face of increasing Japanese aggression in the north, where they are occupying and placing puppet states in places like Chahar and Jehol province, Chiang Kai-shek instead is rallying against the communists. This policy of compromising or appeasing the Japanese while simultaneously attacking the communists is not all that popular in China. Even members of the Kuomintang don't really like this. There's a lot more to this, of course. Chiang Kai-shek knew his forces were too weak to face the Japanese at this time, but perhaps after defeating the remaining communists, well, maybe he could unify all of China and then mobilize against Japan. But what he really needed was more time. Now two KMT generals, Zhang Zhuliang, the son of the former Manchurian warlord, and Yang Hushang, are continuously sent out to suppress the communists, and they suffer significant casualties because the communists are fighting with guerrilla warfare. On December the 12th, 1936, these two generals conspired to kidnap Chiang Kai-shek and try to persuade him to force a truce with the CCP so they can finally face the Japanese. This event became known as the Xi'an Incident, where some bodyguards stormed into a cabin where Chiang Kai-shek was staying and kidnapped him. For the next two weeks, Chiang Kai-shek is held hostage, and the CCP sends diplomats to make their case with the Kuomintang generals for a truce. Chiang Kai-shek, most likely with his life on the line, eventually agrees to end the civil war and joins forces to resist the Japanese. He is then released, and two things have occurred with this meeting. First, Chiang Kai-shek is affirmed the de facto leader of China in regards to military and political matters. Second, 
a second united front has now formed between the KMT and the CCP. Because of this second united front, the CCP is now able to expand its numbers without having to worry about the KMT cracking down on them. This will prove to be a pivotal moment for the CCP. So now the year is 1937. The Chinese have assembled a large army of 1.7 million regulars and over 557,000 reservists in preparation for the upcoming war with Japan because everyone knew it was coming. They had an incredibly low supply of guns, artillery, and only two armored units. Unlike China, Japan was prepared for total war with over 1 million regulars in 28 divisions fully trained, equipped, and experienced, not to mention an additional 78,000 soldiers from their puppet states. The year saw a series of border clashes between the NRA and the Japanese, usually ending with Chinese apologies, and in truth, Chiang Kai-shek was biding as much time as possible to modernize his forces, but then a major event set everything off. On July the 7th, 1937, what became known as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident took place. The Kuaintong Army, as they had done with the assassination of Zhang Zhou-lin, and during the Muk Den Incident, yet again, acting alone without the tacit orders of the military command back home, proceeded to start a skirmish with Chinese forces near the Lugao Bridge. Kuangtung officers crossed the border at Fengtai to conduct some military exercises. Basically, they are trying to provoke the Chinese garrison near the town of Huanping. The Japanese state that one of their soldiers has gone missing, and then blames the Chinese garrison for kidnapping him. The Chinese and Japanese begin to exchange fire, and the Japanese demand permission to enter Huanping to search for the alleged missing soldier. As you can imagine, the Chinese refused. The alleged missing soldier, one private named Shimura, returns to his unit, by the way. But by that point, the small skirmish had escalated into a full-scale battle around Wanping. Now, if you know this story, you might have learned that those in the Kuangtung army who did it, did so without tacit agreements from the military, or for that matter, Emperor Hirohito. While this may be true for the initial debacle, the events that occur from that point on are another matter completely. By the year 2000, we now have a lot more information about how much Hirohito knew of the things going on and how involved he was in military affairs. In the book Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan by Herbert P. Bix, he talks about how Hirohito's actions during the Manchurian Incident of 1931 were not quite the same as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident of 1937. When the Manchurian incident unfolded, Kuangtung field officers had perpetuated illegal fates accompli, and the emperor had explicitly sanctioned their actions after the fact. When he found out about them, he was furious and wanted them to stop, but realized the drawbacks to him personally, taking an active stance against their actions. Japan would have lost face, and he himself feared maybe his brother might Vion V take the throne from him and use such actions as a pretense. Now on this occasion, Hirohito and the cabinet of Kanoi at the time were taking the initiative immediately as the situation evolved. Hirohito was informed at the offset by the minister of the army and told him, quote, Even if war with China came, it could be finished up within two or three months. End of quote. This of course seemed unreasonable to Hirohito, so he convened with Prime Minister Kanoi the service ministers, and the chief of staff to work out his decision.
They all agreed. There was a large time factor present, and it made a huge difference. The more they waited, the less likely an invasion was to succeed. Remember, Manchuria was always the goal for Japan. They wanted it for its rich resources and strategic value. They just wanted to do it in a professional manner that would not bring international troubles for Japan. Hirohito gave the green light for the invasion, but gave strict orders not to go past the peking Tianjin area and for it to be done under the guise of protecting Japanese citizens in the region. Now, does this sound like a idle emperor who knows nothing about what's going on, and perhaps a hostage to the military? The point I'm making here is if you asked your parents or grandparents about the role of Emperor Hirohito during the Pacific War, they would say something like, oh well, he was more of a hostage, not able to control the military leaders in Japan fearing for his own life, or he did not take an active role in military matters. Perhaps they were all lying to him. He never gave any orders. It was most likely Hideki Tojo. For a long time, the official narrative was something like this. Ambiguous, and done specifically in such a way to not implicate Hirohito with many wartime actions. A large reason is that after the war, the Americans and Japanese needed the emperor to keep the Japanese population in check. And how do you go about allowing an emperor, who may have ordered a lot of what happens during this war, let's say certain war crimes, to evade justice or condemnation? As we carry along in this series, just make some mental notes of the actions of someone like Hirohito, and feel free to judge for yourself, because the story is going to get quite messy. Well, back to the incident. The Japanese forces, in a matter of two weeks, went from the Marco Polo Bridge to successfully capturing the cities of Tianjin and Beijing. Then Hirohito sanctioned what was seen as a decision for a war-ending battle to occur. On July the 27th, he sanctioned an imperial order directing the commander of the China Garrison Force to, quote, chastise the Chinese army in the Beijing-Tianjin area and bring stability to the main strategic places in that region. End of quote. What does this mean? Hirohito changed the official public mission of the China Garrison Force from protecting Japanese residents to occupying Chinese territory. Basically, Hirohito had abetted the escalation of the incident, leading to war. Now take note, all of this is happening with no formal declaration of war being made by either Japan or China, believe it or not. It's really quite complicated, but to give a half-decent reason as to why, China at this time is receiving war materials from countries like the Soviet Union and America, but if they are officially at war, the supply lines might have to stop, as those nations can't be supplying a war against Japan. On the other side of the coin, Japan is also receiving war materials and more crucially oil from someone like the United States, who would then cut them off if they were officially at war with China. Yeah, if you are thinking, well, isn't someone like America simply playing off both to benefit economically? then you would be onto something there. But it's one of the many reasons for this to be an undeclared and quite awkward war situation. Officially to the public, the Japanese press issued a report from the cabinet of Konoe on July the 11th of 1937 stating the Chinese side had deliberately perpetuated an armed attack against Japan and, quote, as our empire's constant concern is to maintain peace in East Asia, 
However, we have not abandoned hope that peaceful negotiations may yet ensure non-expansion of the conflict. End of quote. They would go on to emphasize the Japanese government wants to contain the fighting to Beijing and Tianjin while vying for peace. Sure. Like I said, there's a lot of reasons for both sides to not declare war officially yet. For Japan, another large issue was they didn't want to divert forces from the Manchurian border with the Soviet Union, whom they had many border conflicts with in the last few years. In fact, Hirohito was dealing with this specific issue in late June of 1937, just before the Marco Polo Bridge incident. The Emperor had summoned his Chief of Staff Prince Kanin, Prince Minister Kanoi, and the Army and Naval Ministers about the issue, and he said, quote, What will you do if the Soviets attack us from the rear? Kanin answered, I believe the Army will rise to the occasion. Hirohito repeated his question, That's no more than army dogma. What will you actually do in the unlikely event the Soviet forces attack? Kenin responded, We will have no choice. And apparently, Hirohito was quite dissatisfied with this meeting. End of quote. So as you can see, the Soviets were always a major thorn in Japanese planning. They would station a large portion of their own military from 1937 all the way till 1945 along the border of Manchuria and the USSR. It goes without saying, the Japanese operations from 1937 to 1945 required they did not poke the Russian bear, so to speak. Now back in Shanghai, following a Japanese officer who was just shot attempting to enter the Hongqiao military airport on August the 9th, well, the Japanese government demanded all Chinese forces withdraw from Shanghai. When the Japanese forces successfully took Beijing and Tianjin, the KMT determined this was a breaking point. Chiang Kai-shek had had enough. Chiang Kai-shek abandoned the north and shifted the war to Shanghai. His strategy was to direct the war in areas in Shanghai, close to foreign concessions where Western citizens would be. He was going to showcase to the Western powers the resolve of China to fight Japan, hoping to earn their sympathies and possibly their intervention on China's behalf. In Shanghai, there was close to 25,000 Japanese citizens, 60,000 Europeans, and 4,000 Americans. Even before the Japanese demands in Shanghai came, as Rana Mitter states in her book, Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, quote, it had been clear for weeks that both China and Japan were squaring up for a war in central China. The Japanese had been diverting naval troops from the north to boost their numbers in Shanghai, and by early August, they had assembled over 8,000 troops. A few days later, some 32 naval vessels arrived. On July the 31st, Chiang Kai-shek declared, All hope for peace has been lost. End of quote. Now what Chiang Kai-shek is about to do is often criticized, and for good reason. Not only is he going to intentionally force the majority of war into Shanghai, well, he's going to send all of his best troops there to try and make things as long-lasting as possible. The battle will be one of the largest and bloodiest battles of the entire war, and is often described as Stalingrad on the Yangtze. Notably, it's also regarded as the battle that commenced World War II for that matter. Now, as we said before, 
the NRA boasted a standing army of over 1.7 million. The reality, however, was that only 300,000 of them were properly trained, and well enough to fight this upcoming war. Of the 300,000 are 80,000 German-trained divisions, notably the 88th Division. They compose the absolute cream of the crop of Chiang Kai-shek's forces. They are his elites. So out of nearly 2 million men, really less than 100,000 NRA troops were going to be able to fight on par with the Japanese. He's going to send over 750,000 men, 70 divisions, straight to Shanghai. Not only are his best trained men going to Shanghai, all of his armor is coming too, which took colossal time and efforts to hoard for this moment. They have something like 40 tanks, some 1930 light German panzers, and British Vickers Mark E's. He also sends the Chinese Air Force. They've got about 200 aircraft. We're talking about a mishmash of biplanes and some more modern fighters. Curtis Hawks and some Boeing P-26s, nicknamed P-Shooters. So it's a great idea if you think about it. Bring your best forces, bottleneck the enemy, and showcase it all to the Western powers. China's grand resolve. Look how strong we've become. Help us. Support us. Send us war materials. Sure, it all makes sense. However, what happens if you lose all your best forces? You've been training for so long. What happens after the cream of your crop is gone? So let's talk about what the NRA is going to face in Shanghai. Japan is eventually going to send up to 300,000 troops, with the support of over 130 warships, 500 aircraft, and 300 tanks. Boom. The Japanese outgun the Chinese in just about every aspect. This battle will be a bloodbath. On August the 13th, of 1937, Chiang Kai-shek gives orders to his forces to defend Shanghai and states, quote, Divert the enemy, in the sea, block off the coast, and resist landings. End of quote. Panic explodes in Shanghai for the civilians as they try to flee the upcoming horror. It is also here the iconic photo is taken by the journalist Randall Gould, which shows refugees crossing the Garden Bridge in the hopes to be admitted into the foreign concessions, which are neutral territories. Between July 26 to August the 5th, one conservative estimate put the number of refugees trying to enter the French concession in Shanghai at something like 50,000. On the morning of August the 13th, sporadic fire between the NRA and IGA begins. The elite 88th Division motor attacks the Japanese so furiously, the Japanese call for their navy to help bombard the Yangtze and Hangpu River area. This prompts Chiang Kai-shek to order his air force to retaliate. The CAF begin their campaign by bombing the IGN flagship Uzumo on August the 14th, and this event becomes known as Black Saturday, because many of their bombs intended for the Uzumo, they fall upon the Shanghai International Settlement. If you have a chance, Google images of this place, particularly the Great World Entertainment Center. This is where a lot of civilian refugees were hiding from the fighting. Two bombs land right in front of the Great World Entertainment Center, killing 2,000 people. A reporter at the scene had this to say, quote, A bomb curved through the air, struck the Palace Hotel, a glancing blow, and dealt carnage indescribable. 
a scene of dreadful death was uncovered as the high explosives, fumes slowly lifted. Flames from a blazing car played over distorted bodies in shapeless heaps where they had been huddling in shelter. Bodies in coolie cloth turning scarlet lay piled up in the entrances to the main doorways and arcades of the Palace of Cathay Hotel. Heads, legs, arms lay from smashed masses of flesh. Dead in his tracks as he had been directing the corner traffic lay the corpse of a Chinese policeman with shrapnel through his head. A disemboweled child was nearby. End of quote. The Izumo was placed near a highly dense pocket of civilians, and thousands are killed by the loose bombings. It's a catastrophe, and the carnage is all over the streets. There is an iconic photo of this incident called Bloody Saturday. It was taken by H.S. Wong, and it shows a single crying baby sitting around rubble that was the Shanghai South Railway Station. This photo became iconic, demonstrating Japanese atrocities in China, also called one of the most successful propaganda pieces of all time by journalist Harold Isaac. This image was shown to America and created a tidal wave of sympathy for China. Donations for the relief effort started to pour in alongside condemnation of Japan from the US, Britain, and France. Well, the Japanese responded to the bombing of the Izumo by taking to the sky against the CAF from August the 15th to the 18th. China was fighting with all of its outdated second-hand aircraft that it could not produce itself nor hope to replace. So you can imagine the air warfare was not going to go too well for China, regardless of the outcome, so to say. However, given what they had, the CAF managed to shoot down, by the end of the Shanghai campaign, 85 Japanese aircraft and sunk up to 51 warships. They would eventually lose 91 of their own aircraft, and while you say to yourself, well, that's pretty amazing, because it really is, remember, that was half of their air force. And so the Izumo attack was followed up with a Japanese landing of 100,000 troops from North China and Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek was being advised by the German von Falkenhausen, who had told him to keep the fighting in the crowded city streets, where territory would be less favorable to the Japanese than on the open plains. At first, the NRA began a campaign of rushing the IGA and using their numerical superiority to push the IGA into the Hangpu River, then to blockade the coast to deny them the opportunity of reinforcements. The elite 88th Division attacked the IJHQ in Zhaibei. As time went on, however, a standstill emerged just outside the Shanghai International Settlement. The IGA had heavily fortified strongholds, thick with concrete, and the NRA lacked heavy weapons to destroy things like bunkers directly. They had to resort to lobbing grenades into them, hoping to kill the defenders. The NRA would surround these holdouts, kill the defenders, and set up blockades, this tended to work to great effect early on, but then the IGA sent in tanks through the streets, just battering them. The NRA circling strategy fell apart because of the armor superiority of the IGA. Eventually, the coast was cleared up of the NRA, and the Japanese were able to land more forces with ease, and they pushed further inland. Von Falkenhausen told Chiang Kai-shek the town of Laozian, which was the transportation center to downtown Shanghai, was of paramount importance, and thus had to be defended at all costs. 
Chiang Kai-shek concentrated 300,000 troops there, while the IGA amassed 100,000 to meet them, supported by warship bombardments, armored divisions, and the Air Force. What occurred at Laodian became nicknamed grinding a mill of flesh and blood. The carnage and intensity was heightened by the Japanese aerial bombings, which were followed up by naval bombardments and artillery. The IGA would advance under smoke screens and armored support. Even the Air Force would come in and strafe enemy positions. In the face of such Goliath firepower, the NRA did everything they could to hold out. They mined roads at night, performed night raids, tried to sneak behind IGA lines to cause mayhem. Despite their 3 to 1 numerical superiority, the Japanese firepower forced the NRA into a terrible position where they could not even make counterattacks. By all logical accounts, the NRA should have retreated, but the orders were to defend the town to the death, and by the end of September, the Chinese were bled dry and forced to give up Laodiang. While this was a great victory for the Japanese, it came at quite a cost forcing them to rethink their offensive. In October, Prime Minister Kanoi decided to launch a campaign in North China and Central China in order to subjugate the Chinese government and end the war. His public statement went like this, quote, The empire, having reached the limit of its patience, has been forced to take resolute measures. Henceforth, it will punish the outrages of the Chinese army and thus spur the Nanking government to self-reflect. End of quote. Hirohito, for his part, gave approval for the reinforcements of troops and strategic bombing campaigns. Back on August the 18th, Hirohito summoned his army and naval chiefs, asking them, quote, Our situation in Shanghai is critical. Tsingtao is also at risk. If under these circumstances we try to deploy troops elsewhere, the war will merely drag on and on, wouldn't it be better to concentrate a larger force at the most critical point and deliver one overwhelming blow? Based on our attitude of fairness, do you have enhanced plans for such an action? In other words, do we have any way worked out to force the Chinese to reflect on their actions? End of quote. In response, the chiefs of staff recommended an air campaign to crush China's air force, military facilities, vital industries, and political centers. But they also acknowledged air attacks alone would not suffice to make the Chinese army and people lose the will to fight. Japan would need to occupy certain strategic points in North China and naval blockade the Chinese coast. To this, Hirohito gave his sanction, expressing concern only about the dispatch of troops to Tsingtao and the occupation of Shanghai. Yet to these concerns, he would also acquiesce albeit reluctantly. On August the 31st, Hirohito ordered, quote, Dispatch all of the North China area army, destroy the enemy's will to fight, wipe out the resistance in the central part of Hebei province. The words of a emperor not too involved in military affairs, indeed. Daosheng would fall next, which would cut off communications between pockets of the NRA in Shanghai. The downtown area was forced to retreat by the end of October. Starting on October the 26th, the NRA began a withdrawal of the urban center of Shanghai, 
This meant moving out of Xiaibei and Quangwan and other positions which they had held for over 75 days. This is also where the legendary moment happens for the history of the Chinese military. The elite 88th Division was ordered to remain in Xiaibei to defend a single warehouse known as the Xihang Warehouse in order to give the rest of the NRA time to safely withdraw. The location of this warehouse was chosen because literally yards away on the other side of the Xuxiao Creek was the international settlement housing the British and other Europeans. These Westerners are about to watch what became known as the 800 defend the warehouse from over 20,000 Japanese. Much like at the Battle of Thermopylae, this is an unbelievable story. From October the 26th to November the 1st, 452 men of the 88th Division led by Zhu Jinyuan fight like lions against the IGA. The reason this battle is known as the 800 Heroes is because Zhu Jinyuan told the news press he was 800 men strong, not wanting to let the Japanese know their true strength. I would like to take this time to notify you that over at Kings and Generals, they have an episode on the defense of the Xinhang warehouse, and it was me who wrote the script. The animator who worked with me made an absolute masterpiece. The guy made an entire 3D town, the warehouse, the units, everything. I can't recommend watching this episode enough. I don't think anyone else on YouTube has actually done enough justice for this battle. Kings and Generals really outdid themselves, so go check it out. Also, um, a major reason why I wrote the script for Kings and Generals' YouTube channel for the defense of the Seahang Warehouse was because I had previously done on my own channel, the Pacific War Channel, a historic film review of the movie The 800. I know a lot of people, and including myself, knock on Chinese cinema. It can be pretty rough sometimes, but I assure you, this one film that came out quite recently, it's, uh, it's a hell of a film. It's worth watching, and I think I did pretty good justice towards it with my historic film review. There's also a little bit of a history lesson in there, and uh, it's not too long of a video, so if you want to go check it out, check out the Pacific War Channel and look up my review of the 800. It would mean a lot to me. Ultimately, the forces of Zhe Jinyuan gave the NRA vital time to withdraw and move more valuable industry further inland. Shanghai would be overrun, and one of the most horrific events in human history would occur. A rather unfortunate byproduct of the ferocious resistance of the NRA in Shanghai had pressed the IGA to their limits, so it would seem. In November, Prime Minister Kanoi creates an imperial headquarters called the Dayani, established within the royal palace. Its purpose is to be the military instrument through which Hirohito can exercise his constitutional role as supreme commander, and the army and navy could act more in concert. Therefore, now a few days a week, for a few hours, the chiefs of staff, army and naval ministers, chiefs of operations, and Hirohito's chief de aide-de-camp conduct business there. They would coordinate politics, and strategy in a rather ineffective manner, as you can imagine. Some of these meetings required Hirohito's personal presence. These conferences were in a way the legal way of transforming the will of the emperor into the will of the state, because everyone present was required to act under the authority of Emperor Hirohito. The imperial headquarters counseled Hirohito, and his orders would be transmitted to various field and fleet commanders. Hirohito exercises final command over both armed services, but this proves messier than it appears. 
The rivalry between military services would ultimately sabotage much of this, as well as the unique authority of most military ministers. It was physically impossible for Hirohito to scrutinize all the orders out of the imperial headquarters, as you can imagine, but he carefully examined much of the orders that would go out to the forces. Hirohito also interrogated his army and naval ministers throughout the war. It is said in Herbert P. Bix's book that Hirohito involved himself almost on a daily basis in shaping strategy and deciding the planning, timing, and so on of military campaigns. He frequently intervened in ongoing field operations to make changes. Why am I bringing up Hirohito again? Because he will have a large part to play in the next part of this story. Now with Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek had taken quite a gamble. By early November, he had more than half a million troops on the ground there, but some 187,000 of them were killed or wounded in under just three months. This included 30 officers who had been painstakingly trained by German advisors. The Western powers condemned the Japanese, but did almost nothing to actually help at this stage of the war. After Shanghai fell, this newly established imperial headquarters on December the 1st ordered the 10th and the Shanghai Expeditionary Force to close in on the capital of China, Nanking. They burnt and plundered villages and towns along their path to Nanking as the NRA fled for their lives. Prince Asaka took command of the Shanghai Expeditionary Force and General Matsue, who was in poor health, took command of the Central China Area Army, composed of the 10th. On December the 8th, the Japanese forces began an assault on the defenses of the walled city of Nanking, which had a population estimated to be around four to 500,000. It fell by December the 13th, after a defense of only five days. Chiang Kai-shek knew the fall of Nanking was only a matter of time after the Battle of Shanghai was lost. He and his staff realized they could not risk the annihilation of the remainder of their elite troops in a symbolic but hopeless defense of the capital city. To preserve his army for the future, Chiang Kai-shek ordered the withdrawal of most of his troops. His German advisors suggested drawing in the IGA deep into China and using the vast territory as a defense. It was to be a protracted war of attrition. The Nanking garrison force that was to defend the city was, on paper, formidable, including three elite German-trained divisions. But these units were also coming back from the Battle of Shanghai, badly battered. He replenished these units with 16,000 young men from Nanking and the surrounding rural villages. Another 14,000 came from Hankou, but because of the rapid advance of the IGA, most of these troops received only rudimentary training, like how to shoot a gun. Around 80 to 100,000 would defend Nanking against a overwhelming force. The Japanese would be double in number and would be using to terrifying effect aerial bombing. We are talking about Mitsubishi G3M Nels, medium bombers, and Mitsubishi A5M clothes. The Chinese Air Force did make them pay heavily, but with such outdated aircraft, they cannot hope to stop the onslaught of the city. The vast majority of Nanking citizens fled the city, but many remained. Famously, the German citizen John Rabe established the Nanking Safety Zone in the center of the city, 
This was a self-proclaimed demilitarized zone where civilian refugees could come to flee the fighting. The zone would be responsible for saving up to 250,000 Chinese civilians from the horror that was to come. It's a pretty interesting story if you look into it. John Rabe was a member of the Nazi party. There was actually a memorial to him in Nanking. They even restored his residence and it's now called the John Rabe House. There's a few films on his efforts during all of this, most famously the film John Rabe from 2009. The Japanese forces performed what is called a running battle all the way up to Nanking. The Chinese could do little to stop their rapid advance because of the Japanese aerial superiority and their abundance of tanks. Nanking's outer defense allowed the city to be out of the reach from Japanese artillery, but it was quickly overwhelmed. On the south side of the outer defense line, armored units of Japan's 10th Army charged into Chinese positions at Zhangzhuzhan and Niao Shaoshan. Apparently, Chinese defenders, armed with only hammers, jumped onto the vehicles and banged on them repeatedly, shouting to get out, if you could believe that. By December the 9th, the Japanese reached the last line of defense for Nanking, called the Fukuo Line. This included large walls and gates. On December the 10th, General Matsue ordered a full-scale attack and were met with bitter counterattacks from the Chinese. There were some pole boxes and trenches held by the German-trained 88th Division, but with such a large assault, they could not manage to counterattack, but rather were bogged down in the defense. Chiang Kai-shek initially gave orders for the fighting to go on to the bitter end, but by this point, he telegraphed the commander of the defense, Tang Shengji, to abandon the city on December the 11th. The problem was, the Japanese had been performing encirclement tactics. Tang's attempt to get his forces out on the night of December the 12th went terribly. Many soldiers took off their uniforms and tried to blend in with civilians, and many of them were forced to go back to the city to their doom. The fighting within the city, better to be described as mop-up operations, lasted till the morning of December the 14th, though pockets of resistance would continue. At this point, something like 10,000 Chinese soldiers had died trying to defend the city, taking around six to 7,000 Japanese casualties with them. The Japanese knew many of the Chinese defenders were most likely hiding amongst the civilians and searched every building in Nanking for them. They would try to distinguish former soldiers from civilians by checking if they had marks on their shoulders from wearing a backpack or carrying a rifle. Not an exact science, to say the least. Other criteria allegedly was signs of shoe sores, calluses on the face, sharp-looking eyes, or very good posture. As you can imagine, a lot of civilians would fall into these categories, and this is leading to what is famously called the Nanking Massacre, or more notably known as the Rape of Nanking. Now, as many of you listening probably already know, I think all history buffs know something about this event. I wanted perhaps to offer some information that is outside of the box before we begin into a gruesome, horrific event. I would like to take a brief moment to talk again about Emperor Hirohito. There was no order to, quote, rape Nanking. Nor did the imperial headquarters ever order the total extermination of the enemy as a goal of the Nanking encirclement campaign. Standing orders to take no prisoners did exist, however. 
Prince Asaka, who commanded units there, was a ranking officer under the supervision of General Matsui during the height of the atrocities at the Nanking Massacre. He is also Hirohito's granduncle. General Prince Higa Shiokuni, chief of the Army Air Force, is uncle of Empress Nagako and Prince Kenin. They, alongside many other high-ranking officials like Army Minister Sugiyama, knew of the total collapse of discipline at Nanking. Most upper echelon officers in the imperial headquarters knew as well. The East Asian bureau chief of the foreign minister, Ishigara Itaro, wrote in his diary at the time, quote, A letter arrived from Shanghai reporting in detail on the atrocities of our army in Nanking. It describes a horrendous situation of pillage and rape. My God, is this how our imperial army behaves? End of quote. Hirohito, as we mentioned, followed every Japanese military move, read diplomatic telegrams, and read newspapers daily, often questioning his aides about what he had learnt. Hirohito as a commander-in-chief, he had sanctioned the capture and occupation of Nanking. He was also the spiritual leader of the nation, and had given the order to, quote, chastise China. You would assume he bore the moral and constitutional duty to project, even if not publicly, some concern for the breakdown of discipline within his military. This does not ever seem to be the case. Hirohito, at a minimum, had secondary intelligence of the breakdown of army discipline from non-chain-of-command sources, such as domestic or foreign press, or perhaps from his brothers, who might have passed on to him orally rumors of what was going on in Nanking. Hirohito could have secretly ordered an investigation, yet no documentation exists of an imperial order to investigate. Instead, there remains only Hirohito's silence about the war crimes performed by the imperial forces whose movements he was following closely, up to the very moment they occupied Nanking. There also remains the undeniable fact, when the incident was occurring, rather than do anything publicly to show his displeasure, anger, or remorse, Instead, he energetically spurred his generals and admirals on to greater victories in the national project to induce Chinese, quote, self-reflection. On November the 24th, the operations department of the Army General Staff explained to Hirohito that both transport corps and the artillery in central China were lagging far behind the front lines and that they needed to, quote, the Air Force, of the Army and Navy will bomb Nanking and its strategic areas. End of quote. Hirohito was thus quite aware of the approved plans to bomb and strafe Nanking. In fact, he ratified the removal of all restrictions on the Army's perimeter of operations. He did nothing to hold back the Army and Navy's headlong rush towards Nanking. Although, in private, Hirohito was dismayed by what happened in Nanking, he took no notice of it publicly. He awarded General Matsue in February of 1938 for his great accomplishments and awarded Prince Asaka in April of 1940 with the Order of the Golden Eagle. It's very political to this day to talk about this event, but I will try to sum it up conservatively. Once Nanking fell, 
Japanese soldiers began to execute en masse military prisoners of war and unarmed deserters who had surrendered. They also went on an unprecedented and unplanned rampage of arson, pillage, murder, and rape. The slaughter was done in the city and the six adjacent rural villages for over three months. All of this far exceeded earlier atrocities committed during the Battle of Shanghai. General Nakajima's 16th Division, in the first day within the capital, killed an approximate 30,000 Chinese POWs and fleeing soldiers. General Matsue, with Prince Asaka's ascent, insisted on staging a triumphant victory parade down the main thoroughfare of Nanking on December the 17th. This prompted Asaka's chief of staff, Inuma Mamoru, to order the 16th and the 9th divisions to intensify their mop-up operations within the city and nearby villages to make sure no harm would befall the prince. On the night of December the 16th, and into the morning, after the battle had long been won, surviving Chinese troops, who were mostly unarmed and out of uniform, tried desperately to flee as Japanese soldiers rounded them up and executed them. Something like 17,000 men and boys were butchered. At 2 p.m. on December the 17th, General Matsue, accompanied by Admiral Hasagawa, concluded the victory ceremony by bowing to the east and raising the sun flag in front of the former Kuomintang government officer building, proclaiming loudly, quote, Banzai for His Majesty the Supreme Commander. Banzai for His Majesty the Supreme Commander. Banzai for His Majesty the Supreme Commander. End of quote. More than 20,000 soldiers and around one-third of the total troops in the city echoed this in unison. The total number of victims is hotly debated to this very day. The post-war Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal accepted over 200,000 civilians and POWs were murdered in Nanking. The war crimes trial held at Nanking accepted a figure of over 300,000. The first Western news accounts of the massacre gave estimates from 10 to 20,000 killed in the first few days. Japanese historians cite the rationale for the breakdown of discipline to be the result of racial prejudice, desire for revenge from Shanghai, and what is now called extreme psychological frustration. Foreign observers estimated 1,000 women and girls were sexually assaulted and raped daily throughout the stages of occupation. This rape continued into late March, by the time the order in the ranks had been restored. Quote, comfort stations, where women throughout the Japanese empire were forced to serve as prostitutes, were beginning to proliferate. The army established a national restoration government, as widespread violence against the Chinese civilians continued. Between August of 1937 to the end of 1939, up to 420 Japanese soldiers would be convicted by military courts for the rape and murder of Chinese women. Not a single one of these soldiers was executed for such crimes. The Japanese war press censored everything related to war atrocities. What was told to the public was merely that many prisoners captured at Nanking, who died, were left unburied. Nevertheless, a infamous story of two Japanese lieutenants competing to cut the heads off Chinese soldiers appeared several times in the Tokyo Nichinichi Shinbun news press prior to the capture of Nanking. 
these two officers, named Toshiaki Mukai and Tsuyoshi Noda, of the IGA 16th Division. They were competing to be the first to behead 100 people with a sword before the capture of Nanking. Allegedly, Mukai reached 89 and Noda reached 78. The contest, we are told, had to continue because they had not reached 100. According to journalists Azami Kazao and Suzuki Jiro of the Tokyo Nichinichi Shimbun, on December the 13th, both officers decided to up the Andy to 150 people. After 1945, both Makai and Noda were arrested, tried as war criminals, and executed by firing squad. The International Military Tribunal for the Far East estimates 20,000 women, including children and the elderly, were raped during the occupation of Nanking. A large number of these rapes were done systematically by Japanese soldiers going door to door. Women were often killed immediately after in some of the most grotesque ways, such as bayonetting of the vagina or with long sticks of bamboo. Mutilation was another aspect. Often women had their breasts cut off, to the humor of the soldiers. Here is a testimony by Robert O. Wilson, a surgeon at the University Hospital in the safety zone administered by the United States from March the 7th, 1938, and it is as follows, quote, The slaughter of civilians is appalling. I could go on for pages telling of cases of rape and brutality almost beyond belief. Two bayoneted corpses are the only survivors of seven street cleaners who were sitting in their headquarters when Japanese soldiers came in without warning or reason and killed five of their number and wounded the two that found their way to this hospital. Let me recount some instances occurring in the last two days. Last night, the house of one of the Chinese staff members of the university was broken into and two women, his relatives, were raped. Two girls, about 16, were raped to death in one of the refugee camps. In the university middle school, where there are 8,000 people, the Japs came in 10 times last night, over the wall, stole food, clothing, and raped until they were satisfied. They bayoneted one little boy of eight, who had five bayonet wounds, including one that penetrated his stomach, a portion of a momentum was outside the abdomen. I think he will live. End of quote. From John Rabe, the German leader of the safety zone, he wrote this in his diary for December the 17th. Quote, Two Japanese soldiers have climbed over the garden wall and are about to break into our house. When I appear, they give the excuse that they saw two Chinese soldiers climb over the wall. When I show them my party badge, they return the same way. In one of the houses in the narrow streets behind my garden wall, a woman was raped and then wounded in the neck with a bayonet. I managed to get an ambulance so that we can take her to Kolo Hospital. Last night, up to 1,000 women and girls are said to have been raped. About 100 girls at Ginling College alone. You hear nothing but rape. If husbands or brothers intervene, they're shot. What you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and bestiality of the Japanese soldiers. End of quote. 
A Japanese soldier named Shiro Azuma, as part of a documentary film on the Nanking Massacre, was quoted to say, in regards to the rape, quote, At first, we used some kinky words like pikan kan. Pi means hip. Kan kan means look. Pikan kan means let's see a woman open up her legs. Chinese women didn't wear underpants. Instead, they wore trousers tied with a string. There was no belt. As we pulled the string, the buttocks was exposed. We, pikan kan, we looked. After a while, we would say something like, it's my day to take a bath, and we took turns raping them. It would be all right if we only raped them. I shouldn't say all right, but we always stabbed and killed them because dead bodies don't talk. End of quote. Reverend John McGee, an American Episcopal priest, was on a missionary mission in Nanking and produced multiple films on the massacre. He is credited with saving thousands of lives. It is said he disregarded his own safety multiple times running out of the Nanking safety zone to rescue Chinese who were about to be slaughtered. One excerpt that mentions him also mentions a absolutely horrific atrocity. Please be warned of its graphic nature. It is as follows. Quote, During the Japanese reign of terror in Nanking, which, by the way, continues to this day, to a considerable degree, the Reverend John Magee, a member of the American Episcopal Church Mission, who has been here for almost a quarter of a century, took motion pictures that eloquently bear witness to the atrocities committed by the Japanese. One would have to wait and see whether the highest officers in the Japanese army succeed as they have indicated in stopping the activities of their troops, which continue even to today. On December the 13th, about 30 soldiers came to a Chinese house at number 5 Hsing Luko in southeastern part of Nanking and demanded entrance. The door was opened by the landlord, a Mohammedan named Ha. They killed him immediately with a revolver, and also Mrs. Ha, who knelt before them after Ha's death, begging them not to kill anyone else. Mrs. Ha asked them why they killed her husband and they shot her. Mrs. Xia was dragged out from under the table in the guest hall where she had tried to hide with her one-year-old baby. After being stripped and raped by one or more men, she was bayoneted in the chest and then had a bottle thrust up her vagina. The baby was killed with a bayonet. Some soldiers then went to the next room where Mrs. Xia's parents, aged 76 and 74, and her two daughters, aged 16 and 14, they were about to rape the girls. When the grandmother tried to protect them, the soldiers killed her with a revolver. The grandfather grasped the body of his wife and he was killed. The two girls were stripped, the elder being raped by two to three men and the younger by three. The older girl was stabbed afterwards and a cane was rammed up her vagina. The younger girl was bayoneted also, but was spared the horrible treatment that had been meted out on her sister and her mother. The soldiers then bayoneted another sister of between the ages of seven and eight, who was also in the room. The last murders in the house were of Ha's two children, aged four and two, respectfully. The older was bayoneted and the younger split down through the head with a sword. End of quote.
I could go on for much longer, but instead I would recommend multiple books, films, and documentaries made on this event. It's hard to speak about it and not feel some sort of primordial rage build up, as I think any of you could imagine. I read one book, which I would argue was one of the hardest books that I've ever had to stomach, and I used to study genocide under a specific professor at the University of Concordia. A lot of it was about the uh, Bosnian genocide, and I had to read a lot of very gruesome books, but this one that I had to read is by far one of the hardest to read, and it is called The Knights of Bushido, A History of Japanese War Crimes During World War II by Edward Frederick Langley Russell. A huge part of it, as you can imagine, is dedicated to the Nanking Massacre and the Bataan Death March. If you are interested in the absolute horror of this war, I would go give that a read. You will not be disappointed. Another minor incident occurs in Nanking, and that's the bombing of the U.S. gunboat Penei, which was anchored on the Yangtze River around 27 miles upstream from Nanking. Two Japanese planes deliberately bombed it, and to add insult to injury, after the Penei's crew and passengers abandoned the burning ship, Japanese soldiers in motorboats boarded it and fired on the last lifeboat, making its way to the shore. Three Americans died, with three others seriously injured. When the news reached the West, it came at the same time reporting of the Nanking massacres began. These two events really drew American public condemnation of the Japanese military. Prime Minister Kanoi immediately apologized and paid $2.2 million in reparations for what was claimed as a mistake, the sinking of the Panay. Hirohito took no personal action to counter the damage, though he could have easily sent telegrams expressing regret to President Roosevelt or King George VI. The incident of the Panay brought Hirohito briefly to the attention of the American public. On December the 14th, the Chicago Daily News carried a banner headline, quote, Break with Japan Wade. It goes on to say President Roosevelt's demand for apologies, compensation, and guarantees against repetition of attacks on Americans in China. Beneath the caption was a picture of Hirohito in military uniform, sitting atop a white horse, a famous picture you can Google, by the way. Why am I even mentioning this newspaper article? It's because the Daily News implied the emperor possessed real political power, and thus should be held accountable for the sinking of the Panay. This is a rare occurrence, as most newspapers tended to treat Japan as a monolithic political entity, or that the Japanese military extremists were in charge. The narrative that will be built up for the American public will be that the emperor was powerless and just a figurehead. The American public's image of Hirohito, even down to Pearl Harbor, was that the monarch, without ruling, reigned without participating in political decision, and was at all times obedient to the counsel of others. That's enough about Hirohito for now. Let's get back to the war. Outside the Nanking story, the Kwangtung army advances southwards through Inner Mongolia and crushes the Chinese at the battles of Nanko, Huili, and Kalgan using their superior armored units. They follow this up by conquering Shangxi and Taiyuan, which is led by Chahar, expeditionary force, under one General Hideki Tojo. By November the 7th, the IGA advanced to occupy North China, as the IGN naval blockades the coast of China, 
to prevent any foreign aid from coming through. By the end of 1937, collaborationist governments are set up such as the Great Wei Municipal Government of Shanghai, the Provisional Government of the Republic of China, also in Shanghai, the Reformed Government of the Republic of China in Nanking, and the Inner Mongolian Mengjian Government, which was little more than a puppet state. At this point, Japan expected the Chinese to capitulate. Their capital had fallen afterwards. The Japanese military was eager to end the war in China and to prepare for the confrontation they would inevitably have with the Soviet Union. Chiang Kai-shek instead repeatedly rejected the demands of the Japanese and moved the capital and its industry to the center of Hankou. The war had thus escalated. Bolstered by their victories, the Japanese tried to connect their occupation between Beijing to Nanking. One day after the occupation of Nanking, Prime Minister Kanoi made a public statement. It is as follows, quote, Before we take joy in the news of the fall of Nanking, we cannot help but be saddened by the fact that 500 million people sharing the same race and same culture are hopelessly deluded. The nationalist government went to the edge both diplomatically and by its actions with the anti-Japanese movement. They failed, however, to assume responsibility for the consequences of their actions, abandoned their capital, and split their government. Now when they are collapsing into separate military cliques, it has become clear to us that they show no sign of reflection. Accordingly, we are forced to rethink our course. End of quote. The Japanese government demanded China formally recognize Manchu Kuo, cooperate with it, and Japan to fight communism, to permit the indefinite stationing of Japanese troops in China, and to pay war reparations. On January the 9th of 1938, the imperial headquarters held a conference to decide on a policy for handling what is called the China Incident. The Imperial Conference adopted a document specifying that if the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek refused to accept peace entirely on the terms they gave, Japan would withdraw recognition and confer it upon a different, more pliant regime. Presiding in full army uniform, Hirohito gave his approval after 72 long meetings without uttering a single word. The Chinese delayed in their response to the conditions, and the Kanoi's cabinet broke off negotiations. On January the 16th of 1938, Kanoi issued an edict that they would no longer recognize the nationalist government. This was a ploy devised by many members of the Japanese army and navy to eradicate Chiang Kai-shek's government, and it meant the end to peace negotiations. Hirohito failed to stop this crucial step forward. By this time, 62,000 Japanese had died, 160,000 were wounded, and deaths from illness in China and Manchuria totaled 13,000. In the early months of 1938, the Navy made landings in Tsingtao, and Japanese forces eventually occupied northern Shandong province by March. Yet it was here the Japanese would get their first bitter taste of defeat and the first major victory for China. In Taizerhang, located on the eastern bank of the Grand Canal of China, northeast of Zhuzhou, when the Japanese broke off negotiations with Chiang Kai-shek's government, he summoned a military conference and declared that the top strategic priority was to defend the east-central Chinese city of Zhuzhou. 
This was influenced by the major railway that held a midpoint in Zhuzhou, and if they were to seize it, it would give Japan mastery over north-south travel in central China. The Japanese advance towards Zhuzhou was done via three routes. The 13th Division, led by Yipei Ongizu, advanced from Nanking. The 5th Division, led by Shishiro Itagaki, amphibiously assaulted Qingdao and advanced along the Taiwei Highway. The 10th Division, led by Rensiki Izogai, advanced from Hebei. The Japanese numbered up to about 70,000 men, with 80 tanks or so. The city of Xizhou was a major hub between four provinces of Shangchu, Shangdong, Henan, and Anhui. It was also the cradle of Han culture, going back thousands of years. Defending it was the NRA 5th War Area commanded by Rifle to Chiang Kai-shek, a man named Li Xiaogren. Chiang Kai-shek bolstered him, and this accumulated into over 280,000 men in 10 divisions supported by the 3rd and 4th pursuit groups of the Chinese Air Force. The 13th Division, led by Yipei Ongizu, drove westwards from Nanking, periodically being attacked by the NRA who were forming defensive lines, then retreating and following this up by attacking the Japanese supply routes. Yipei Ongizu's men managed to take Mingguang, Jingyuan, and Mingbu, but this continuous guerrilla warfare was taking a major toll. Then at Hebei, his forces were engaged by three NRA corps, simultaneously trapping his forces south of the Hui River. Even with air support, he could not advance any further, and thus his part of the three-pronged attack failed. He was forced to meet up with Isogai's 10th Division to try and pincer attack on Xuzhou instead. Meanwhile, the 5th Division under Shishiro Itagaki landed at Qingdao and began to face the NRA resistance along the Taiwei Highway. The NRA forces managed to delay the Japanese for over a month, forcing the Japanese to conduct heavy aerial bombing campaigns to push the enemy away. Then in March, as the Japanese continued on Zhuzhou, they were caught between the NRA from two directions and had to withdraw, losing two entire battalions in the process. This moment seemed quite significant, as the IGA headquarters were stunned. An under-equipped Chinese regional unit had defeated one of their divisions. The 10th Division of Rensuke Isogai was more successful than the other two, having set off from Hebei. Chiang Kai-shek had ordered Li Xiangren to utilize offensive defense instead of passive defending. This meant they would seize the initiative to attack. So the NRA forces launched a two-pronged attack against the Japanese at Jinying in mid-February, and both sides saw heavy casualties. One of the outcomes of the NRA's actions was the funneling of the Japanese to a location known as Dai Erzang. Now, Renzuke Izogai's 10th Division was not supposed to drive as deep as it did into the NRA's territory to attack a place like Dai Zerang. They were supposed to wait for Ipei Ongazu's 13th Division to link up and go straight for Zhuzhou with Itagaki's Shishiro's 5th, eventually joining them. Isogai was overly confident, however, and assumed he could take Taizarang in a swift, single blow, clearing the way along to the Junpu Railway to Zhuzhou. Li Zhongren gave responsibility for defending Taizarang to Sun Lixong, whom had with him four full-strength partially German-trained divisions. Taizarang is situated on the southern end of Shangdong province close to the border with Shangzhou. It's been the site of many previous wars. 
Because of this, its villages had walls around them, basically fortresses. Atazarang was a 1.2 kilometer long wall outfitted with six wall gates and nine watchtowers. It's basically served as a gateway to Zhongzhou, and if the Japanese wanted to pass, they would need to go through it. On March the 25th, the Japanese launch an all-out attack on Taizarang, and a 300 contingent breaches a northeastern gate, gets inside a place called the Chenghong Temple, and the Chinese burn it down, killing all of them. The next day, the Japanese break through again and use the burnt-down temple as a base to systematically attack the district, block to block. This turns into house-to-house -house combat, and it's brutal. One of the NRA officers, Qi Feng Chang, wrote of it, and it is as follows, quote, We had a battle for the little lanes of the town, and unprecedentedly, not just the streets and the lanes, but even the courtyards and the houses. Neither side was willing to budge. Sometimes we would capture a house and dig a hole in the wall to approach the enemy, Sometimes, the enemy would be digging a hole in the same wall at the same time. Sometimes, we faced each other with hand grenades, or we might even bite each other. Or when we could hear the enemy was in the house, we'd climb on the roof and drop bombs inside and kill them all. End of quote. The districts they were fighting in became ruins, with not a single house left intact. The Chinese then began to set up artillery pieces and anti-tank guns to target a Japanese squadron of nine tanks and knocked out five of them. Boom. What is beginning to occur is while the Japanese enjoyed superior technology, that technology does not amount to much in such cramped conditions. Taizarang became something like the Battle of Thermopylae, you see. The cramped city-like conditions allowed the Chinese to hide everywhere and use close-range weaponry. When the Chinese destroyed the five tanks, the Japanese were stunned. They stopped firing for over five minutes as the Chinese cheered and scrambled swarming on top of the tanks. In late March, the Chinese Air Force sent the 3rd and 4th Pursuit Groups and bombed Japanese positions and proceeded to dogfight with the Japanese Air Force. While they were not very successful at shooting down Japanese aircraft, what they did do was bog them down as their land units fought on. However, after seven days of continuous fighting, the Chinese Second Army had suffered 50% casualties, and the situation became desperate. Qi Feng Chang, commanding the 31st Division, requested permission from Sun Liangzong to withdraw and prevent complete annihilation. Sun Liangzong in turn telephoned the 5th War Area Commander Yi Zhongren, saying, quote, the second army group has already reached 70% casualties. The enemy's firepower is too strong and their offensive is too fierce, but we have almost completely depleted their strength. Sir, could I request permission to temporarily withdraw to defend the canal's southern bank so that the northwestern army can at least have some survivors? Sir, this would be a great act of your grace on your part. Li Zhongren responded, quote, we have viciously fought the enemy at Taizarang for a week. Victory and defeat are decided in the final five minutes. Reinforcements will arrive tomorrow at noon, and I will personally be coming to Taizarang in the morning to supervise the battle. You must hold out until dawn and organize night attacks. Persistence is victory. Once reinforcements arrive tomorrow, 
we will be able to launch a pincer attack on the enemy from the inside and outside of the district. This is my order. If you disobey it, you will be court-martialed. Song Yanzong replied, quote, Yes, sir. I will absolutely follow your order. We will keep fighting until the entire army group is annihilated. End of quote. So Qi Fengsheng was relayed the orders from Sun, and ordered the demolition of a bridge over the Grand Canal, his division's only hopes of retreating from Taizahang. They would fight to the death. Yi Zhangren sent the 20th Army Group to maneuver around the Japanese to cut off their supply lines and block their retreat. The 20th Army Group lured the Japanese along the Taiwei Highway, giving them free passage. After 10 days of continuously fighting, the Japanese resorted to unleashing poison gas on the entrenched Chinese defenders to dislodge them. Yet, they held on. The 20th Army Group then made a counteroffensive on the Japanese springing the trap. On April the 6th, the Chinese counterattack collapsed the Japanese lines, forcing them to retreat. The Japanese were fortunate to have superior mobility as it allowed them to prevent a complete rout. A large reason the Chinese pulled this off was a mixture of the overconfidence of the Japanese coming into Taizerhong instead of linking up with the other divisions as they were supposed to. The Japanese aerial bombing, artillery, and gas attacks almost annihilated the Chinese Second Army. But while this occurred, the Japanese were lured in and outmaneuvered by the 20th Army. Another sad aspect to this was the use of Dare to Die Corps. These were Chinese troops who would use suicide vests made out of grenades, and they would dive under tanks to suicide bomb them. During one engagement, Chinese suicide bombers destroyed four tanks. The Chinese reported something like 20,000 casualties. The Japanese claim up to 24,000 deaths amongst 11,000 casualties. They lost 30 tanks and 10 armored cars, 3 aircraft, and a ton of war equipment. Machines were captured. We are talking about something like 70 artillery pieces, 100 trucks, thousands of machine guns and rifles. This was a tremendous blow to the Japanese military and a huge boost of morale for the Chinese. United States Ambassador Nelson Johnson wrote to the Secretary of State Cordell Hull from Wuhan days after the battle, stating, quote, Chinese troops in the field there won a well-deserved victory over the Japanese troops, administering the first defeat that Japanese troops have suffered in the field in modern times. Conditions here at Hankou have changed from an atmosphere of pessimism to one of dogged optimism. The government is more united under Chiang Kai-shek, and there is a feeling that the future is not entirely hopeless due to the recent failure of Japanese arms at Huxiao. I find no evidence for a desire for a peace by compromise among the Chinese, and doubt whether the government could persuade its army or its people to accept such a peace. The spirit of resistance is slowly spreading among the people who are awakening to a feeling that this is their war. Japanese air raids in the interior and atrocities by the Japanese soldiers upon civilian populations are responsible for stiffening of the people. End of quote. Sir Archibald Clark Keir, the British ambassador in China, wrote to the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, on April the 29th, shortly after the victory, grudgingly crediting Chiang Kai-shek, quote, 
Chang has become the symbol of Chinese unity, which he himself has so far failed to achieve, but which the Japanese are well on their way to achieving for him. The days when Chinese people do not care who govern them seem to have gone. My visit to central China, from out of the gloom and depression of Shanghai, has left me stimulated and more disposed to believe the provided financial end can be kept up. For Chinese resistance may be so prolonged and effective that in the end Japanese efforts may be frustrated. Chiang Kai-shek is obstinate and difficult to deal with. Nonetheless, the nationalists are making it their muddling way of a good job of things in extremely difficult circumstances. End of quote. I apologize for that terrible British accent. Despite the tremendous victory, the NRA had to depart Zhuzhou in mid-May, leaving the city and its outskirts at the mercy of the very angry IGA. The Japanese continued their bombing campaigns on a single raid killed over 700 people on May 14th. The area around Zhuzhou was in ruins. Bridges and buildings were all destroyed. One-third of Zhuzhou's houses were destroyed. Most of the local population had fled in terror. There was repeated massacres witnessed by missionaries in the area. Zhuzhou fell to the Japanese, marking a terrible blow to Chiang Kai-shek's hold over central China. Mao Zedong's Yan'an base was hundreds of kilometers northwest of Zhuzhou, but after the defeat there, he came to an understanding. In May of 1938, Mao Zedong gave one of his most celebrated lectures on protracted war, in which he chided those who had been overly optimistic. It is as follows, quote, After Taser Hong victory, some people maintained that Suzhou campaign should be fought as a quasi-decisive campaign, and that the previous policy of protracted war should be changed. We cannot win quickly, and the war of resistance will be a protracted war. End of quote. What Mao Zedong is getting at is he knows China will prevail and that the way it will will be via guerrilla warfare. Japan at this point dispatched almost all of its existing armies in China to attack the city of Wuhan, which had become the political, economic, and military center of China. The Japanese hoped to destroy the NRA enough to break the will of the KMT government and negotiate for peace. On June the 7th, they took the city of Keifang, 450 kilometers north of Wuhan. To capture Wuhan, the Japanese first had to take the city of Zhengzhou, where there were two major railway lines. When they took this city, Wuhan would be left open to attack. As the IJA marched 40 kilometers from Zhengzhou, the Chinese defenders became desperate. There was a serious chance the entire Chinese war effort could be smashed here. If the Japanese took Wuhan and the NRA fled yet again, things could disintegrate. This was to be the war-ending move by Japan, and the Japanese were treating it as such. And here we will get another tragic affair, bitter in the memories of those who survived it. Near Zhengzhou is the Honghe, also known as the Yellow River. The Yellow River made the surrounding land rich and fertile, and had been the very cradle of China's civilization. However, the nurturing river was treacherous too. Over the centuries, the river periodically would flood the lands drowning thousands of people. The Chinese eventually learned how to control the river by using massive dikes, and many of those dikes were near Zhengzhou, right across the path the Japanese were soon approaching. 
There was one way to stop the Japanese advance, at least for a while, to breach these dikes. In the year 1887, a major flood occurred on the Yellow River, and it took nearly a million lives. Let that sink in as we tell this part of the story. Chiang Kai-shek's military advisor, von Falkenhausen, suggested in 1935, quote, The Yellow River is the final line of defense, and it would be a good idea to plan to extend its defensive strength. End of quote. Well, von Falkenhausen did not suggest to use the water instead of, let's say, soldiers when he meant defense. One Cheng Quan, commander of the first war zone, put the idea of flooding the river to Chiang Kai-shek, who had recently flown to Changzhou. Staring at the city that would be captured in mere days, he realized the only weapon to stop the Japanese was the Yellow River. If Chiang Kai-shek did this, it could kill countless Chinese. But if he did not, then within a few days, his precious nationalist government might not have enough time to relocate to Chongqing, and they would probably have to surrender. This pivotal moment has often been compared to the decision of France, when its high command had to surrender to Germany during June of 1940. As in France, Chiang Kai-shek's decision was being made in the face of a most terrifying assault the country had ever seen, and China's armies were much weaker and less trained than in France. To that being said, the decision to break the dikes was a product of desperation. In order for the plan to work, the strategy meant the Chinese government could not give any public warning in case the Japanese found out and accelerated their advance. Between June the 4th to the 6th, the army began its first attempts to blow up the dikes. But the structures proved very durable. Then on June the 8th, 2,000 men were put to work to break the dikes and were told they would each earn a reward of 2,000 yuan if they succeeded. They began digging until the dike was breached, earning their reward. On June the 9th, the water flow grew exponentially. Until, in the words of Zhang Zhenyu, quote, The water was fierce, following like 10,000 horses. My heart ached. We did this to stop the enemy so we didn't regret the huge sacrifice, as it was for a greater victory. End of quote. Correspondent Theodore White of Time Magazine wrote of this event a few days later. It is as follows, quote, Last week's ungovernable, i.e. the Yellow River, lashed out with a flood which promised to change not only its own course, but also the course of the whole Sino-Japanese War. Severe breaks in the dikes near Kuei-Thang sent a five-foot wall of water fanning out over a 400-square-mile area, spreading death. Toll from Yellow River floods is not so much from the quick drowning as from gradual disease and starvation. The river's filth settles ankle-deep on the fields, mothering germs, smothering crops. Last week, about 500,000 peasants were driven out from 2,000 communities to await rescue or death on whatever dry ground they could find. End of quote. Chiang Kai-shek's government had committed one of the grossest acts of violence against its own people. Chiang Kai-shek tried to place blame for the dikes being broken on the Japanese aerial bombing, but the Japanese fiercely denied this. 
The nationalist government never admitted to this during the war, but the truth became widely known. Estimates are hard to gauge, but it is said thousands of villages were flooded and or destroyed. Three to five million became refugees, having lost their homes, and over 400,000 people died. Some place the number of dead as high as 800,000. The Japanese would capture Wuhan on October the 27th regardless, by getting the Navy to help them along the Yangtze River. The KMT retreated to Chongqing, and the Kanoi cabinet considered it a high point in the war. Kanoi issued a second statement on the war on November the 3rd of 1938, maintaining that Japan intended to construct a new order in East Asia. He also declared that it would not veto participation by the nationalist Chinese government. Eight weeks later, on December the 22nd, Kanoi issued his Three Kanoi Principles, which were considered Japan's official war aims. First, China must formally recognize Manchu Kuo and establish neighborly friendship. Second, China would be required to join Japan in defeating communism. This part heavily implied that Japan would have the right to maintain arms within China. And third, there must be a broad economic cooperation between the two governments, including Japan's right to develop and exploit the natural resources of North China and Inner Mongolia. With this, Kanoi hoped to drive a wedge between factions in the nationalist government, perhaps even earn more to the side of Wang Xingwei. Chiang Kai-shek refused to negotiate, saying he would only consider talks if Japan agreed to withdraw to pre-1937 borders. The Japanese responded by trying to break the Chinese resistance by ordering both their army and navy's air forces to launch the war's first massive air raids on civilian targets. These massive air raids began in the winter of 1938 as test runs, but by May of 1939 they marked a campaign of terror. Their targets were the new KMT provisional capital in Chongqing, and the major cities in occupied China, killing many. One inhabitant of Chongqing said of this time period, quote, Your everyday plans were decided by the weather. If you needed to travel a long way, then you choose a cloudy day. If it was a clear day, you would get up early before it got light out. End of quote. After the air raids, in May of 1939, the Chinese government hired professional body barriers to deal with the corpses of people killed in the raids, and they would be paid the equivalent of one pound of rice per body. They would transport most of these bodies on shipping boats out of the city, and at the height of the raids, more than 100 boats operated at a time. Yet, China did not break. On January the 4th of 1939, Kanoi resigned, having been unable to end the fighting in China. Instead of crushing China, the Japanese had aroused a deep spirit of national resistance wherever their troops advanced. Unable to maintain control of the vast rural countryside, the Japanese forces were stretched thinly, and their lines of supply and communications were at their limits. Thus, in 1939, the war entered a new phase, and with it came many defeats for the Japanese. They would lose the battles of Zizian Zhaozhang, 
despite extensively using aerial attacks with chemical weapons and initially capturing many cities, but ultimately being unable to hold them. That battle would earn them 21,000 casualties. This would be followed up by their defeat in the first battle of Shangsha, of which there would be four battles of Shangsha. This would be the first time a major Chinese city successfully repelled Japanese advances. Yet again, the Japanese resorted to poison gas and earned 40,000 casualties in their endeavor. Then they lost at the Battle of South Guangxi, having to retreat from the province, and ultimately the civilians would suffer tremendously, over 11,000 would die there. Then they would lose at the Battle of Xiaoyi, having 2,700 troops die, with over 7,800 wounded, but they would end up occupying Yixiang, drawing ever closer to Chongqing. The Japanese enjoyed superiority over the air in regards to armored units and had devastating chemical weapons. Yet because of their supply lines being pushed to their absolute limits, this allowed the Chinese to make counter-offensives and win major battles, increasing the morale for the NRA. As you can imagine, the period after 1938 turned into a war of attrition. China was doing everything it could to stall the Japanese forces so it could build up its military capacity. Joseph Stilwell, the American military attaché to China, called this winning by outlasting. The NRA adopted a concept called magnetic warfare. It was to attract advancing Japanese troops to definite points where they would ambush, flank, and encircle them. This would allow the Chinese to inflict heavy casualties on the Japanese. When 1940 rolls around, Japan was stretched to its limit. It encountered tremendous problems while trying to administer and garrison its occupied territories in China. To try and solve this problem, Japan began to develop puppet governments favorable to Japanese interests. However, their military went on to commit more and more atrocities. The Chinese people were not running into the arms of the Japanese, to say the least. By 1941, Japan would hold most of the eastern coast of China and Vietnam while fighting off guerrilla fighters. I would like to take this time to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and to continue helping us produce this content, please check out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you're still hungry after all that, Go check out my personal channel at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Now this is where we're going to leave off for now, which might be surprising to all of you as we did not even touch 1940 or 1941. But don't you worry. The reason being is we have two more prelude episodes to cover, and one of them is going to specifically go into 1940 to 1941 with the situation in China and it changes quite a lot. The Western powers, who have been sitting idly as China fights for its very survival, well, they're going to start helping. However, the next episode is going to be quite a different one, because we are venturing into the West to talk about the emerging war in Europe. So join us next time for the war in Europe. <laughs>